Hi, this is Cynthia Weil. I'm the author of I'm Glad I Did. It's a young adult novel, appropriate for not-so-young adults as well. And the book combines equal parts music, mystery, and romance. It's historical in that it takes place in the pivotal summer of 1963 when its protagonist, J.J. Green, a would-be songwriter, gets a job in the Brill Building, the place where songs are born. Now, my guest today is Steve Tyrell, whose new CD is called That Love and Feeling, written by a couple of people we both know very well, like me. Nice title. (laughs) And Barry Mann and Phil Spector. And in this record, his 11th album, he revisits many of the classic pop tunes of his generation that were written at places like the Brill Building in the 1960s. And he makes these songs his own because they are his own. He'll tell you more about it, but he's been behind the scenes, and now he's in the spotlight. So, Steve, you came to New York when you were just a couple of years older than J.J. was in I'm Glad I Did. When did you leave your hometown? Well, you know, Stan, when I heard the songs, you know, that you guys were doing, and I was living in Houston, and I had my own little band, but I was just blown away by the songs of Lieber and Stoller and you and Barry, and uh, uh, I wanted to do that. I, You guys had orchest- orchestrated, like, R&B songs, and, and came up, you know, and had these incredible productions that only existed in New York, and I was drawn to that kind of music. I thought, man, this is the way music is supposed to sound. Especially those Drifters records and Benny King, rest his soul, who just passed away about two weeks ago. You know, uh, those those that music really drew me to New York, and I didn't need to go to college. I so, went did to, you uh, just hop a Greyhound bus or a plane, or no? It was a series of things. I started producing records and making my own records when I was in high school, and uh, so I got kind of in the music business. And I, I met Jerry Wexler, and and I went to a, a, a convention in Miami uh, the summer before I moved up, and I met Florence Greenberg. Ah. And, uh, yeah, and she told me, she it was somehow we just hit it off, and she had brought Tony Wine up there, and Tony Wine was 17, and I was 19, and she was trying to fix me up like all nice Jewish mothers do. You should meet this girl. <laughs> <laughs> and so I hung out with Florence and Tony, and uh, and she invited me to New York, and I went up there, and it just a, a series of things happened right. I gave her an idea for Chuck Jackson uh, to do uh, an R&B version of Since I Don't Have You, and I had a vision of how I thought it should go, and she said, well, why don't you just produce it with my son? And I said, okay. And I went to the studio, and the first session I did was uh, with the Shirelles and Chuck Jackson, and everybody started crying. They thought that song was so beautiful. <laughs> then she gave me a job. I went home and packed my bags and moved to New York. When so you that was your first it, job in New York. You kind of yeah. started at the top. I started working for Scepter Records as a staff producer and a promotion guy. And I think I, the first two people I met, it was amazing, was Carol and Jerry, you know. Carol King and Jerry Goffin, that is. Yeah, they had written, Oh, no, not my baby, that Maxine Brown had done on our label. And uh, uh, and I think they had written it for the Shirelles. I, 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 in your play, beautiful, 
Shirley had bad taste when it came to uh, Carol and Jerry's tunes. <laughs> I think they, I think they they wrote that she didn't want to do "Will You Love Me Tomorrow." I understand that was before me, but she didn't. I think they wrote, "Oh no, not my baby" for the Shirelles. And she didn't want to do it, and we took the same track that they had made for the Shirelles and put Maxine Brown on it, and she had a big hit with it. You know, of and then Carol, and then Carol and Jerry came and wrote the follow up. Uh, uh, so that I was, you know, I landed in New York, and the next thing I know, I was right in the middle of it. Now, you um, last night, Barry and I went to see a, a show that was being put on for the Painted Turtle, which is Paul Newman's yeah. camp for medically challenged kids. And, I know. I wish <clears> I could have gone. Um, B.J. Thomas was there. I know. And you he's have like, a long history with B.J. Thomas. Right. Well, he's texted me five times from there, you know, <laughs> from last night. He really told me all about it. Uh, Jay Leno was uh, was in, and Carol was there. And I was sick that I couldn't go because that's a wonderful charity. And I've done stuff for Lou and, and Paige in the past. Uh, just I'm in New York and I couldn't, I couldn't go. But I understand it was great. But B.J., right after I got to New York, uh, BJ really is the reason I didn't ever sing anymore, you know, because <laughs> until I thought, your later years. Yeah, because I thought B, BJ and I were on local labels together, and we put out records, and they they were successful. Some of them in Houston, and I told Florence right away, right after I got there, within like six months, I said, "There's this guy in Houston that we should get on the label." Uh, I said, I, "He's the best singer down there, and he just keeps putting out these records that are." hits in Houston, but then they never make it in nationally. If he got some promotion, I bet you he would, he would be big. And she said, well, okay. I mean, she was pretty cool for us. <laughs> she said, okay, well, do you have anything by him? And I played her, I'm so lonesome I could cry. And she loved it. She loved his voice. And we went and made a deal, and we put that out. My first record and the first artist I signed to the label was B.J. Thomas and the that record was a big hit, you know. Absolutely, and, uh, and you had, um, you were part of an iconic record and songwriting team when you recorded "Raindrops Are Falling on My Head." Well, Bert is the next. I mean, we had such an amazing time there. Across the hall, we just reminisced about this. Was Valerie Simpson and Nick Ashford? They had just started. They had never written a hit. I mean, right across the hall, five feet from me every day was that was it started out Valerie, Nick, and Jossie Armstead, and I would hear them writing songs, and uh, uh, and then of course Bert and Hal David were the kind of like the team that was the most important to us and the and the people I spent the most time with in my early career, you know, because they would listen to me. It's amazing, you know. You always listen to the kids. Right. <laughs> yes, of course you listen to you know? the kid. And I would say, Oh, this is a good song, we should do it and they get I remember Message to Michael was called Message to Martha. And and uh, you know, Hal David said, That that song is not for a girl, it's for a guy and I said, Well why not? You know, most girls go on the road. I mean most guys go on the road and why can't a girl be singing about that? And anyway, we, we, we had a nice, good relationship over the years and uh and at the very raindrops was about the last thing that i had anything to do with with them they wrote that song at the last minute 
Uh, Bert told me this, and I'm sure it's true because he never took you know any credit at all ever for being you know for writing any lyrics. But he said when he saw that scene, the title came to him. You know, rain. He shot. told that story last night. Oh, Bert did. Yeah. Yes, he, he did. That that. Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head was what we used to call a dummy title in that we just, it's the first thing that popped into our head and we did it so we'd remember the melody and then Hal couldn't come up with anything that beat that, so they used it. Well, see, so I remember. <laughs> I wasn't even there last night. So, uh, yeah, so Bert, the, 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 you know, that's the only title, only the lyrics he's ever come up with and then Hal finished it i always thought and i never have been able to you know completely nail him on this but it's a myth to it at that time the biggest kind of pop writers you know at that particular time 1969 were burt backrack and hal david in their way and bob dylan in his way you know Mm -hmm. and i always thought that and i think that's burt being bob dylan you know? Ah, interesting. Well, Can you I do Bob I, Dylan singing raindrops? Well, yeah. Raindrops are falling on my head. And just <laughs> like a thousand feet or two big for his bit. Nothing seems to fit. I mean, where did that come from, right? <laughs> exactly. Have you ever heard a Burt Backrack melody sound like that? No. Also, Burt said that he found out later that the um, executives at the movie company wanted the song out of the movie. And there well, was Lawrence, there was one person who fought for it and kept it in, and I, I wish I could remember who that was. It might have been the director, probably. Probably. Uh, but, but, you know, it's like all things, you know, that ha- most of the things in our career, and, and yours too, and I, I know lots of them, they just have a mind of their own. <laughs> You're so right. There you know, are some things that can't be stopped and some things that can't happen no matter what you do. What you try to do, you can just beat your head against the wall and nothing will happen. And then there's there's things like, well, somewhere out there is an example of that. And and uh, probably love and feeling in its own way. Well, you wrote it faster. and <laughs> Barry thought it was like going at the wrong speed. And... and <laughs> You know, I mean, we could tell those stories, but but I'll finish Raindrops for you. Yeah. They, they they got the song written at the very end. Bert and Hal David, we had already had Hooked on a Feeling, and we had had some other hits with BJ, but he was he was a little cold at that particular moment, like his last couple of singles didn't do much. And uh, they, they first heard Ray Stevens singing that song, you know, and they pitched it to Ray Stevens, and he passed on it. And because he had that song, Everything is Beautiful, that he passed. And then somebody told me that they played it for Neil Diamond. I'm not sure, but he passed. Florence hated it. She said, this song is terrible. I don't want to put this song out. And and I told her, if you don't put this song out, I quit. (laughs) Oh, that's a big statement to make. I swear I told her that. I said, Bert Backrack and Hal David have built your company, you know, they're trying, they had been nominated, Cynthia, four times for the Oscar. They had done everything they needed to do except win an Oscar. And everything everything they had written got beat by the most ridiculous songs. You know, like Alfie lost to Shim Shim Cherie or something like that. You know, and, and The Look of Love lost to Talk to the Animals. 
or something like that. And, and, and they were these big deals. And, you know, they wanted to win an Oscar. And uh, I told And you Martin, made that happen. Well, I said, you're not going to put that record out? They will kill you and they'll shoot me on the way to getting to you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 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 so, so we did. And uh, the rest was history. Oh, and I told him about BJ. I really pushed for BJ because I, I thought he was right for it. He's a, I said, he's from Texas, man. This is a cowboy movie. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, he sang it last night, and he still sounds just as good. He's a great singer. He's a great singer. And, and you know, BJ really, he, you know, he when he did something for somebody, he usually ended up making it the biggest thing they've ever had. That's the biggest hit they had ever had. It now, won the Oscar. You met my husband, Barry Mann, before you met me. How did you yes. meet Barry? Well, I, I met Barry kind of through Carol and Jerry. You know, I was intrigued. I met Carol and Jerry first, and we did a, you know, that the finished, uh, uh, Oh No, Not My Baby, which I still, one of my favorite songs, man. Do you do uh, that in your in your uh, current record? Ah, uh-uh, I wanted to, and I should have. I wish I would have. Yeah, I, I do. I love that song. It, it's hard to find a male lyric for it, but a couple of people have done it. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but 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 I maybe one of these. Days. I did it with Linda Ronstadt forty years later. You know, Linda made a very good record. She sang it just like Maxine Brown. Anyway, I somehow through Jerry or Carol or whatever, really wanted to meet you and Barry. And uh, somehow that, that happened, and Barry came over, and he played me a song that, uh, was it was it Feelings or Angelique? Feelings, right? I forgot the first record we put out. I think it was a song called Feelings, not the one that became a hit, a no. different one. Yeah, but and I loved it, and I loved Barry's voice, and I loved what he was doing, and we became big buddies, and we, and we made a... We put that record out on Scepter and, the, you know, and started our 50-year relationship. And you, so we were working and Barry was coming over to the studio and playing me songs for BJ and whatever. And I hadn't met you yet because you were pregnant. <laughs> and and let were... me tell that story. <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> okay, so, um, yes, I gave birth to my daughter, who is now Dr. Jen on serious radio and couples therapy, but she she wasn't a doctor yet, but the doctor brought out Dr. Jen, and I was, you know, in those days, they put you out when you had your baby, and um, I woke up, I didn't know if I'd had a boy or a girl, and I see this attractive man sitting in my hospital room, <laughs> and I think, that's not my husband, <laughs> who could that be? And he says, my name is Steve Terrell, and we're, you had a beautiful girl, and we're going to make some great music together. <laughs> and that was the beginning of our relationship. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? I yeah, and that. Jenny still see, says, this is the guy who saw me before my father. <laughs> that's right. But you see, I'm Italian, and that's what we do. You know, somebody had called over, I guess, when you went into the hospital looking for Barry, said, Tiffany is about to give birth. So I, I, you know, I think I told my assistant or secretary or whatever, get all the berries, see if you can find berries. And I just went to the hospital to meet berries. <laughs> but the Italians go to the hospital. That's what they do. Somebody sprains their finger and the whole family shows up. <laughs> exactly. 
That's, now, if you say hospital to an Italian, they show up. You know, it's like saying dinner to a Jewish family. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so that was not weird to me at all. Oh, my man Barry's having a baby. Let's go. You know, let's go bring him a cigar. Now, that was the beginning of our story, and, you know, we have been pals ever since. And Steve was very, very instrumental in um, our Grammy-winning Academy Award-nominated song, Somewhere Out There. So why don't you tell your version of it, and I'll tell my version of it. Okay. Well, Barry and I started a company called Tyrell Man Music when we were in L.A. We were thinking it would be a cool thing to do. We'd get an office on the set, <laughs> and we'd walk around with movie stars, and we'd come up with songs for movies. And, this, and, and so that's we didn't end up on, on the set, but we had a nice place on Sunset, and that's what we were doing. And that, and you guys got a job at the same time writing the songs in Steven Spielberg's animation, An American Tale. And, that, and at that time, animation was really dead. Uh, no one wanted to do this. It was animation, and it was about a Jewish mouse. So who was going to see that? Well, it, it, yeah, but it was Steven Spielberg's only. I thought it was exactly. Kind of cool. And uh, and Barry, uh, you, you know, I didn't really have much, anything to do with it at the beginning. That was y'all's job, and I never forget. I love telling this story because it really, you, you know, how close I am with you guys and songwriters. I, my roots in music are from the point of view of songwriters. And it's amazing. You can write You Lost That Love and Feeling, the biggest hit of all time, and then you're on the spot for the next one. It doesn't matter what you just did, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Right? You're like, as good as you your last hit. What, do you got, what have you written lately, babe? <laughs> well, like we were so one. excited because we didn't have to write a hit. We were That's told right. all you have to do is it's like writing for theater. You just have to keep the story moving, and there are suggested titles in uh, the script. The title for this spot was called The Mouse in the Moon. And I the said, do I have to use that? And they said, no, you don't, you don't. So I came up with a, a title called Somewhere Out There. And then... Okay. Well, then I'm listening to the songs, you know, because Barry plays them for me. He's in the other office right next to me, and... He's playing songs, and I hear ba da 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 da. And when I said, "Man, what the hell is that?" and he says, uh, "Oh, that's this little tune that uh, we're writing for the mice to sing to the moon." <laughs> I said, "That's a hit, man!" And he said, "Oh no, no, we don't have to write a hit. <laughs> <laughs> we don't, we don't need to write a hit. It's not a hit. It's not a hit. We're going to get paid. We don't have to pressure. You know what I mean? You know how Barry is." Exactly. We don't have the the pressure of having to write a hit. This is just, I said, well, that is one, man. And I don't know know how you knew that because the song sounds as if it could have been written in the 1940s. I just loved it. I mean, I just loved it. And I heard Barry playing it before I heard the little kids sing it. You know, so I heard, I heard him somewhere out there. I mean, it just sounded like a home run to me. And let me... sing your praises for a second because you won't do this yourself but at that time the idea of having someone put a real record at the end titles of an animated film was brand new it had never been done and the man i'm talking to is the man who first did it 
when yeah. he went in and cut a real record on somewhere out there with Linda Ronstadt, and I think the first person you did it with was Peebo Bryson, right? No, no, we did it the first. It's really this is one of those stories that your audience should know, where the song has a mind of its own and it will not be denied. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Yes. The first thing I did was when I heard it, uh, it, it was the, the kids. You know, we, in animation, you do the voices like a year or two before they get animated. So they brought Barry, brought the little kid, or somebody brought the little kids in. I wasn't there for that. And then he played it for me, and it was, <laughs> you know, and it yeah. was touching. But nobody heard that as a hit with those guys singing it, the little kids. And But I said, Barry, let me make a demo of this, man. And, 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 and the composer was against it, the co-writer, James Horner. James Horner, yeah. Because he had written all this stuff for the London Symphony, and I said we could put it over the end of the movie with like a real artist, and and reprise that song at the end of the movie, and it will knock people out. And he didn't want to do that. He wanted to have his themes played by the London Symphony. He didn't want to have a silly little pop song. He said played yep. over the end of the movie. So anyway, we the guy Bert Berman who worked for the uh, film company. It was Universal, it was yeah. Universal gave me a budget, and I went in the studio and made a demo of the way I heard somewhere out there, with a, as a real record. And he liked it, and but but was you know so he somehow got it to Steven Spielberg, and uh, Steven Spielberg liked it. Well, once Steven Spielberg liked it, then everybody liked it. You know exactly. But, everybody but, who hated it suddenly liked yeah. it. Yeah, everybody went, oh, yeah, but, you know, that's a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad I came up with that. And and originally, you may not remember this, Cynthia, but you gave us, you gave me the best idea when I was hawking to put that over the end. You said, well, why not Michael and Janet Jackson? Remember that? No, I don't. Well, two bro- a brother and sister. So my demo, really, that I made was inspired by a conversation that I had with you when we were, you didn't think it was a hit, but you were, I, I, you were saying, well, if you've got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Think about Michael and Janet Jackson, you know, and it was a great idea. So mine was a little more R&B, you know, and uh, my feel of it. And uh, Steven Spielberg, I understand, showed the movie to Michael Jackson, I think. Uh, that's yeah. the word I've got. And, uh, but because I didn't think that was a bizarre idea, you know, they were friends. They had worked on E.T. together. Yeah, and it, it, had, was, um, it was sung by a brother and sister in the movie. So, gee, I didn't know yeah. I had such a good idea. Yeah, you did. You, 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 the, the inspiration for the demo that I made came from you, whether you know it or not. Well, and, now and, I know it. Well, now you know it. And, and, and so it, it, Steven Spielberg hears it, and he likes it. And somehow Michael and Janet Jackson can't be can't do it because he had done Captain EO that year for Disney and and he was the biggest star in the world and and uh, Columbia Records or Epic or you know CBS whoever it was Walter Yitnikoff didn't think they they could do that so we had nobody to sing it and uh, somehow uh, I think Steven Spielberg uh, well, um, Linda Ronstadt was living with George Lucas. In those days, they were a real item for a while. And I I think 
Steven Spielberg played it for George Lucas, and George Lucas played it for Linda Ronstadt. And that's how she heard it. And uh, she loved it. But she wanted to do it with Reuben Blades. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the good news was I got a call from Peter Asher that Linda Ronstadt was the, wanted to do somewhere out there and wanted to meet with me because she loved my demo and wanted me to work on it with her. And she, I said, well, who's going to sing the male part? You know, And he says, Reuben Blades. And I'm my, my God. How's that going to work, you know? He's a great actor, and he's kind of a Latin guy, you know? And it just didn't equate to me that that could possibly work. And uh, But we went, I met with Linda, we went, we got the arrangement together, we went in the studio, and the day that we recorded somewhere out there, the version, Ruben Blaze couldn't make it. He was working on the Milagro-Beanfield War. So Linda and I sang it. I sang as much of the guy part as I could. I didn't know the harmonies, but I sang the verse that that, that James sang. And when she heard me singing it, because I have a more bluesy voice, you know. Yeah. She said, "She said I don't think uh, Reuben might not, he might be right for this. Now that I hear how you're doing it, and I thought to myself, I looked through the ceiling. I said, there is a God. There is a God." <laughs> <laughs> And I said, I, 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 I kind of agree with you. And she said, well, what should we do? She said, let's just finish the whole thing. And who do you think, who do you think should sing it? And I immediately thought of James because he was in our family. Y'all had written just once, which is another great story. But uh, I thought of James. And James had had a couple of really good duets. And uh, so I, it, it, he was the only person that came to my mind. She never heard of James Ingram. He barely heard of her. And, <laughs> and uh, so we made the track. Strange, we finished the whole thing. And that weekend, Reuben Blade sang it, but I wasn't there for that. And uh, and then we brought in James, and James and I and Linda put the, his vocal on, and and we sent it to Warner Brothers. I just knew, that's it. Okay, the whole thing, we've done it. It's a hit. There's no way this is not going to be a hit. And Linda hadn't had a pop record in about 10 years at that point, by the way. People don't remember. I didn't remember that. Yeah, she had done the the, the Pirates of Penzance. She'd done a Mexican album. She had done three Nelson Riddle albums. She hadn't had a pop record in 10 years at that point. And so this was her first pop record in a long time. And uh, that's, you know... So so it just kind of, we sent it over to, to uh, Warner Brothers, and I'll never forget this. Well, I, I, put, I, I called James just to back up. I don't know if I'm going too long with the story, but it's a great story. Uh, and he came by my office and picked up the demo, and he played it over, brought it over to Quincy. And Quincy called me back like in 30 minutes, you know. Hey, man, this is pretty good, yeah. Well, when do you want it? I said, uh, Tomorrow. <laughs> so we <laughs> so we went in and we did it. We sent it to Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers called us back and said, you can't have James. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know this. Yeah. We said, well, why? And they said, well, he's done too many duets. You know, he's been on other people's albums. We keep, you know, we just put out his own album, and we don't think he should do any more duets. We think he should be James Ingram by himself. And my heart dropped, you know. So I called James. I said, "I said James, they just told us we can't have you, and you're going to uh, 
you're going to lose out on having a number one record, man. It may be an Oscar-winning song. And he said, well, let me see what's up. And he called Quincy. I said, if I were you guys, I'd go up to Warner Brothers tomorrow and argue with them. So meanwhile, Peter Asher calls me up. This is the real story. Honest to God. And he says, well, we lost James, but the good news is we got Peebo Bryson, and he's flying in tomorrow. And so meet me in the studio tomorrow morning for put his voice on. So I, I was brokenhearted, you know. Yeah. And and I thought, and not against it, Peebo Bryson, but we already Yeah, Peebo's a great singer, but, you know, James is James and Peebo is Peebo. They're different qualities to their voice. Well, they, they, right, and we, they already, we already had it. This was the unknown he was talking about. Pebo was cold. James was hot. James was, came right in, did it great. So we go to the studio. And I'm, t- I'm trying to talk to Peter Asher. I said, give us a few more days, man. They'll probably change their mind. No, we've got to get it done. So it would have been better for, I mean, I understand from a political point of view that if, if, P- if Peter Asher would have delivered Pebo Bryson, it would have been good for him and Linda Ronstadt because Pebo Bryson was on Electra. You know, and he so was, now he, you guys know the behind-the-scenes maneuvering that puts duets together. Yeah, it would have been good for them because they would have helped another artist out. You know, you know, I. So they were well. Peter was for it, but I wasn't. You know, and uh, and so we. So he comes in now. The most famous line somewhere out there is James's changing of the melody of his first line mm-hmm. instead of going. Somewhere out there. He went, somewhere out there. Remember mm-hmm. when he comes in? Yes. I mean, that was a killer. And uh, that was his first line. And so Peter says, okay, let's play James's uh, thing. You know, Tebow knew what the story was, that James was on, but couldn't, we couldn't have him. And I said, no, 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 we can't. We can't do that. And I, in front of Linda, in front of her, and Peter, and I said, that's not right, man. I said, Peebo's a great singer. Let Peebo sing whatever he wants. Right. It's not right. It's not right to play James's vocal and then have him do James. That's not right. And they went along with it, and they didn't play it. And so Peebo never sang somewhere out there, which he definitely would have done. Oh, he I definitely would have done that. You know? And uh, so the, in the middle. The rest is history. Yeah, well, in the middle of putting his vocal on, we got a call back from Warner Brothers. We said, okay, you can have James. <laughs> and then I felt really bad for Pino, you know. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, I had a number of, of really hit, good hit records with Pebo later, so I, I was I was always saying, get Pebo because I felt so bad about what yeah, happened. Yeah, me too. And, and, and you know, and, I mean, just to quickly wrap this story, my, my, I coached Little League. And in, uh, uh, oh, God, now I'm going to have a senior moment. The uh, One of my uh, players' uh, father was the head of Disney, Chris Montan. And uh, he used to come to the games, and he he hired me for Father of the Bride. So the next year, when they did Beauty and the Beast, they just picked up where we left off. You know, we set the the, the table with somewhere out there, and then Disney picked it up and had a duet on every animation they did. 
Absolutely, you know? and nobody knows that you were the one with the first great idea. The light bulb went <laughs> well, off over the Tyrell head. Well, yeah, that was it. That was true. But, but the, the good news is they tried to hire James. Do you know that? To sing with this new artist they had, Celine Dion. Do you no, know I didn't know that. Yeah, they tried to hire James, and James wanted too much money. <laughs> and, uh, so they got? So they got Pebo. <laughs> yes, so it all came around. Pebo won in the long run. Isn't that great? I mean, that's a great story. Now, you were behind the scenes doing things like this until um, a certain movie happened that you were music supervising. I think it was it 1991? Uh, yeah, or two ninety. I don't remember uh, whether it was ninety one or ninety two. It might have been ninety two when it came out. I'm not sure. But Father's the Bride. Well, Barry and I were doing a lot of that stuff, you know. Yeah. And 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 uh, where we would come up with songs for movies and TV shows and stuff. And uh, we did Dirty Dancing. Remember that, all of us? Well, we almost did Dirty Dancing. Well, we, we gave them all the ideas. We didn't like the script. Them? What do you think they got Bill Medley from and Mary Clayton and everybody that, you know? That, so we were doing that stuff, you know, all the time. And and a lot of times yeah, they would call me. And I had sung in several movies, Mystic Pizza, The Client, uh, a lot of movies before Father of the Bride, but it was just because they didn't want to pay anybody famous, you know. Right. <laughs> and they, so they, they got someone it. infamous. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so in, in Father of the Bride, we needed a song in the scene where Steve Martin sees his daughter for the first time dancing. And they love the Dorothy Fields, Jerome Kern song, you know, The Way You Look Tonight. It is a wonderful song, a beautiful lyric. And they just love those words over that scene. But Frank Sinatra's version was swinging, you know, someday. Well, they wanted a more soulful approach to it and the band was going to be playing it and so we went to the studio and made that arrangement of somewhere I mean somewhere out there the the way you look tonight and I sang it so they could hear you know I said you could maybe have somebody black sing it you know (laughs) and if you did it could sound a little bit like this and and uh and they said well who's that and I said well that's me and they said well man you got to be in the movie (laughs) And that the rest was history. I was in the movie. It got like a thousand letters. There was no email then. And who is this guy singing? Where can I get more of his records? So when did you cut your first CD? I think it was called A New Standard, right? That was like seven years later. Everybody thinks, you know, that I'm singing Father of the Bride and then took that opportunity to become an artist. No. Not close. I I didn't think anybody would want... People started telling me, and even offered, like Marty Bandier, and some of the publishers offered to make uh, finance an album of standards for me if I would just go do it. And I thought, who the hell would buy it? Who would buy an album of standards by a guy, you know, 50 years old? And uh, so I didn't do it. And then when the second Father of the Bride movie came out, where she gets pregnant and the Mother and the Daughter, have that was just as good as the first one, I thought. I sang two more songs in that. And strangely enough, the chairman of the board of Atlantic Records went to see Father the Bride Part Two uh, 
with his uh, wife, and she went crazy over my. I opened that movie first five minutes of me singing, and she made Val Azoli was his name. Made him go get that soundtrack on the way home, and then he knew me and he saw it was me, and he bought the soundtrack out and he played it for Ahmed Erd again. And both of them called me up and said, "Man, you got to make an album of standards." And I thought, well, hell, Ahmed Erdogan wants me to make an album of standards. Maybe there's something to it, and I did. And that first album came out on Atlantic, and it sold about 400,000 copies, and really was the beginning of all this stuff. You know, Rod Stewart heard that album and started showing up at my gigs. <laughs> and how many CDs have you released since then? Eleven. This is the eleventh one. And this eleventh one um, is filled with the great songs of the Brill Building. Right, uh, right. Well, this 11th one is me. And you know, always, how does that fit into the great American songbook paradigm totally, that you established? Totally. I think it is the great American songbook for our generation. Mm-hmm. You know, I always say if I messed up one of Cole Porter's songs, what the hell is he going to do about it? <laughs> but if I messed up one of your songs, I know the phone would be ringing. And you would say, what are you talking about? You changed that line? Don't you know what you're doing? You know, this is our music. The great Americans are the songs written by you and Barry and Carol and Bert and Hal and Jeff and Ellie and Neil Sedaka. And that's, the, that's, the sec, that's the great American songbook, chapter two, the new standards. They're not, these songs are not like written by P. Diddy. You know what I mean? Yes, These exactly. songs are 50 years old already. How did that happen? Uh, well, I How don't know. How did 50 years go by? I don't know, but but these are some... When I sing these songs in concert now, as soon as... I usually start out so I don't shock people, you know, because I've, like, I've made 11 albums, and thankfully they've all made the top 10 on the Billboard Jazz Charts, and nine of them have made the top five. Mm-hmm. So when people come... When people come out, you know, I'll sing a few standards, and then I'll, as soon as I hit on Broadway, man, people say, you can look in the audience and people go, yeah, well, that's, 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 yeah, that's my show. I remember that. You, you know what I mean? It becomes personal to them. Absolutely. Now, you know, I was a great fan of Bobby Short, and um, he was uh, a cabaret singer well-known for um, his live performances at the Carlisle, and tell us how he passed the torch to you. Well, he he, he passed away. Yes, <laughs> and, but... Uh, um, so I, I had started working in, uh, in New York a few years before that at Michael Feinstein's club. Right when my album came out in 1999, I, I, I started working here. And so when he died, I used to go see Bobby, and, and he was great to me. And uh, oh, I worshipped him. Yeah, he was great. He was a certain elegance that only he had. And uh, and going to the Cafe Carlisle and hearing him was a, just a kind of a thing, you know, of its own. And uh, his brother was his, and his two nephews uh, looked just like him. I got to know them because I'd go over there when I when I was in town not working. And uh, when he died, for some reason, they thought to call to see if I would take that holiday season that he didn't miss for 36 years, you know. And how many years have you been appearing at the Carlisle now? 
ten. This is just, just finished my first my first decade. Uh, so if, if you want to see Steve Tyrell live and you don't want to wait for the Carlisle, just go on his website. What is it? SteveTyrell.com, dot com. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And check his tour schedule because he is back and forth across the country singing the new American songbook and the old American songbook. And his current album is called That Love and Feeling. And we are thrilled to be a part of it and to know him. And I guess you can tell by the sound of my voice, I love him dearly. I love Thank- you dearly. And, I, I, you know, Cynthia, you've taught me so much over the years about, you know, what lyrics, you know, people don't know. I mean, I had an education. I went to your university. I'm a graduate student. You know, just what great lyric writing is about and and, and, and what the songs mean. And, and the more you get into it and the more you read about really, you know. But Frankie Valley told me, you know, that he would read the lyrics before he ever thought about singing the song. Uh, Frank Sinatra used to do that, too. He would read the lyrics and know the story. And, uh, you know, you've taught me that from day one. Thank and you, Jerry, friend. Too. Jerry and Hal David, too, you know. Thank so you so much that. for joining us. And um, we could probably talk for two days. but Well, we should do it another time. And we should not talk about me, but we should talk about you. I was all prepared to tell all my Cynthia Wild stories. Oh, I ended up telling my own stories. Well, that's what the people wanted to hear on this podcast. I wanted to know about you and your part in uh, the 1960s, which is where I'm glad I did with set. And um, thank you again, my love, for being with us. My pleasure, darling. I love you. Always have, always will. Thank you. Bye-bye.